way of loyalty is shattered and littered with shattered idols. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we come now to your word, as we look at the words that Moses gave under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the new generation of Israel, we pray that you would open our hearts, that we would hear these words afresh, and that you would show us that you call us to loyalty, but we have a big problem with idolatry. Show us the way of faith and repentance. Remind us that you're in the business of shattering our idols, that we would be loyal. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12. We'll look from verses 29 through 32. We'll actually be referring to not only this latter part of chapter 12, but the entire chapter, uh, chapter 13, although we will not read it. I would encourage you to read Deuteronomy 13 on your own, but our scripture reading is Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 32. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them. After they have been destroyed before you, that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. The word of the Lord is eternal. It stands firm, firm in the heavens. It revives the soul. And we trust God the Holy Spirit to revive us today by his powerful word. Please be seated. The history of our denomination proves the point that the greatest threat to loyalty, to faithfulness to God is not from without, not the enemy that is out in the world, but from within, within the church itself. The trouble in our old denomination, the Presbyterian Church, United States, PCUS, that contributed to the formation of our denomination, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. And the problem with the old denomination was, again, not the enemies from outside the church, but the enemies from within. Professors, seminaries, pastors, sessions, church members, who themselves had compromised and sought to lead a denomination to compromise God's truth. The greatest threat to loyalty is really not the enemy out in culture. It's the enemy within. The lesson Moses taught the new generation, and the one, by the way, he teaches us today, is this very thing. The threat of their own hearts and the threat of others within the covenant community that would encourage compromise. Last week, our focus was on 
God as the only God to worship, the one true God, and God who regulates his worship. He not only says, worship me alone, but he very clearly tells us how to worship him. That was what we talked about last week. And today's message continues that theme of worship, though the focus is drilling down on this issue and this great problem of idolatry. In fact, Moses here in Deuteronomy 12 and in 13 issues a warning to God's people regarding the sin of idolatry. And so Moses taught three things. First, loyalty to God is commanded. Secondly, beware, be warned, compromise to commit idolatry is often encouraged from within. And then finally, faith is required to remain loyal. So those are the three things that we will consider today. Loyalty was and is commanded because the way of loyalty is littered with shattered idols. In other words, we need to be reminded over and over again to be loyal to God. Moses issued a stern warning about idolatry, and idolatry ultimately is rooted in the human heart. And so he commands the new generation to be loyal to God as they go in to dispossess the Canaanites and to take the land. We see loyalty as a theme in the passage that we read. I'll just read excerpts from what we just read from Deuteronomy 12, 30 through 32, verse 30. Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them. That is, the Canaanites. Verse 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, meaning the way the Canaanites worship their false gods. And then finally, everything, verse 32, that I command you, you shall be careful to do. Loyal and obedience, they go together. Moses called that new generation to be loyal to God by offering true worship to God alone as God prescribed. That they would not become ensnared by following after the idolatrous worship of the Canaanites. They were to be loyal to God by following everything that I or that he commanded. Why did Moses have to remind the new generation to be loyal to God? I mean, one would think loyalty to God was a given. I mean, think of what God had already done in the history of Israel. Consider what God did at the Red Sea in redeeming Israel from bondage and slavery. Consider what God did at the foot of Mount Sinai by entering into covenant with Israel. Consider all the manifold promises that, that God gave to Israel. First, at least in their minds, is this promise of land. And think of, though it took 40 years because of unfaithfulness, think, though, of God bringing the nation over 40 years 
they're poised at the bank of the Jordan River, ready to go in and realize the fulfillment of the promised land. Why would there be any question about being loyal to God? One should not even have to think about it. A God so great as the God we worship, loyalty should just be natural and obvious. Our merciful and gracious God has united us to Christ in saving faith. He has saved us from sin, saved us from the second death, eternal death, and saved us and protects us from Satan and his dastardly schemes. He has bestowed on us justification. He has bestowed on us sonship. He has assured us that all of his promises will be fulfilled. This table that is set before us today declares all the benefits of the covenant of grace, all the promises of God, the work of Christ. It, it just declares all that God has done for us. It preaches Jesus. And as we look at this table and all that God has done for us through Christ Jesus, we should not even have to think twice about being loyal. It's such a gracious, merciful God that has saved us. We shouldn't question it. Being loyal to him makes perfect sense, natural, obvious. It should be as involuntary as breathing that we would be loyal to this great, awesome, redeeming God 24-7, 365 days a year, year after year after year until Jesus comes back or we go to him. Why do we have to be reminded to be loyal to God? You would think it would be totally unnecessary for us, and you would think it would be totally unnecessary for the Israelites. Why are God's people called over and over and over again to loyalty? There is a very short answer, and here it is, the human heart. That's why. We are ever so prone to idolatry. And at the very core of the matter, what is idolatry? It is, among many things, disloyalty. It is turning from God and placing our affections and our devotion on something other than him. We're prone to do that. I just want to help us understand the dynamics of idolatry and idolatry by just simply referring to several scriptures. Idolatry is the natural default setting of mankind. Romans 1, through 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Idolatry is the default setting for natural man. Idolatry is turning from God not only to place our affections and devotion on something other than God, but to actually seek life in that something other than God. 
Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Instead of drinking deeply from the, the living water, the, the gushing river, flowing river of God's grace and mercy, all that he has for us, that he freely offers to us, what Jeremiah is saying, that the people turn, that's mistake one, they turn from drinking deeply out of the fountain of God's ever-flowing rich grace, and they go and they get their little shovel and they dig a little hole in the ground, a cistern, thinking that is going to give them life. At best, it will give them muddy water. Idolatry is turning from God to seek life in something that has absolutely no way of giving life. Idolatry is primarily a matter of the heart. I encourage you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. I want to read this, Ezekiel 14, 1 through 6. Very significant passage when looking at the whole issue of idolatry. Son of man, these men meaning the elders of Israel, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may hold, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent. And turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abomination. Ezekiel points out two realities about idolatry. First of all, the struggle of idolatry is not I just have one idol. It's I have a multitude, a host of idols in my heart. And secondly... Idolatry is not just for the common Israelite. Idolatry was most significantly committed by the leaders of Israel, the elders of Israel. They committed idolatry. Our theological forefather, John Calvin, is consistent in his writing with uh, this passage from Ezekiel. Man's nature, that is man's heart, Calvin said, is a perpetual idol factory. Commonly known, the heart is, is an idol factory, is the way it's often said. The reality of Ezekiel and Calvin apply not just to those outside of the covenant community, but most significantly to those within the covenant community. 
In other words, it applies to us, those united to Christ in saving faith. Ezekiel's words and Calvin's commentary, if you will, on Ezekiel's words. We, those who know Jesus and love Jesus and have a new life in Jesus, are not inoculated from committing idolatry. We have a new nature, yes, praise God for that, but we continue to struggle with sin. We continue to struggle with idolatry. Yea, we have a multitude of idols in our hearts. Idolatry is ineffectual. It promises much and never delivers. Look at our text today. It alludes to this. In verse 29, Moses referred to God sending the Israelites in, and he would cut off the Canaanites from the land. They would dispossess the Canaanites. God would dispossess the Canaanites. And then he caused Israel not to follow their ways, not even to inquire about how they worship their false gods. I mean, why would Israel think it was a good idea to even ask the Canaanites that were dispossessed or try to do some research on how the Canaanites worship when the mere fact that their gods could not save them from the one true God dispossessing them. They were ineffectual. Why would you want to buy into a system that is worthless, that is useless? Why would you want to believe in a God that can do no more than a rock? It's silly. And we see the humor right here in the scripture that Moses spoke. It makes absolutely no sense for God's people to be ensnared by a defunct, false, useless, worthless, powerless, ineffectual religious system like that of the Canaanites. But God's people often do what does not make sense. And not just the Israelites. The same is true for you and me. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, I know you're not supposed to have favorite Bible passages, but I do, is in 1 Kings chapter 18. It's that wonderful story of Elijah's contest there with the prophets of Baal. I encourage you to read that story. It's got some humor in it. I'll allude to that in a moment. But here, you know, under Ahaz, the, the Israelites were worshiping Baal. And so, so Elijah stands before one man, Elijah, in fact, he said, am I the only one who still believes in God? Elijah is standing there at 450 Israelites who had become prophets of Baal who were there. And so Elijah wants to show them that their God is ineffectual and that the one true God is all-powerful. And so he develops this little test, this contest. And so he says, okay, you prophets of Baal, I want you to go and slaughter a bull. I want you to go and collect some wood. I want you to put the slaughtered bull on top of the wood, an altar, but don't set fire to it. And then I'm going to do the same. So Elijah went out, slaughtered a bull, got the wood, put the bull on top of the altar, didn't set fire to it. Then Elijah said, 
Prophetess Abel, you go first. You've got all morning. I want you to call, I want you to summon Bell to send down fire and burn this sacrifice. The prophets of Baal said, okay. So they did that, and man, they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff, weeping and chanting and yelling and pleading, and nothing's happening. All morning, they are trying to summon Baal to come and consume this sacrifice with fire. At one point, Elijah says, verse 27, 1 King 18, he starts taunting the prophets of Baal, and he says, maybe Baal is using the bathroom. The actual Hebrew is a little bit more graphic. But maybe he's relieving himself. And Elijah goes on taunting them. Finally, after midday, he says, enough. He summons the prophets of Baal to him. And Elijah calls upon the one true God, Yahweh. Fire rains down, consumes the sacrifice, and the fire the text says, licks up. Now the text doesn't say this, I say this. Licks up every milliliter of water. Because what Elijah had done before he summoned God was that he drenched the sacrifice, the wood, with much water to show how powerful God is. To show how ineffectual Baal was. Then he ordered the death of the prophets of Baal. False prophets of a worthless God. Idolatry is ultimately shown to be ineffectual. And let me just say this. Even the little idols that we cling to so desperately. Thinking they're going to give us life. Will be shown to be utterly ineffectual, worthless, useless in light of eternity. Isaiah 44, 9 through 10. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing an idol profitable for nothing. Isaiah really asked here in this passage, who could possibly be given to fashioning worthless idols? Everyone here. What can be an idol? Just about anything. Several years ago, I had a shocking revelation <laughs> that one of my biggest idols was my reputation to do my duty. You may think that's silly, but you wouldn't think it's silly, and maybe you have, because my sense of duty has been challenged from time to time, but even if someone suggested that I was not doing my duty, like Renee, for example. Not that she ever would think that. But even just a constructive bit of criticism that I was not doing my duty would, would 
result in a rather severe reaction by me. Why? I don't know that this is a Bible passage, but I think it's consistent with Scripture. Don't mess with anyone's idol, or you'll get your hand bitten. So you have the little child who has his favorite toy, and he's holding that toy. Little brother or little sister comes up. Not that I've seen this. Little brother or little sister comes up and tries to take that toy. Whack! <laughs> and it's true of you too, as well as me. When people start messing with our idols, whack! Why? Because that idol we're going to protect at just about any cost. Because that idol, in our view, is what gives us life. It's what's important to us. We can make idols out of good things, bad things, pet sin, family work, money, theology, ministry, parenting. Whatever we seek instead of God to, get to give us life. Maybe peace, peace can be an idol. Just, I just want to, to be happy can be an idol. I don't want to have any um, conflict that can be an idol. We just seek that. And so what's going on in our heart? This is how I see it as functional unbelief. That what we do, Jesus is on the throne of our heart. He's put himself there. No, no, no way to dethrone him. But what we do in our hearts speaking, that we go and create our own little counterfeit kingdom over here on the side. We erect our own little counterfeit throne over here on the side, and we put our little idol on that little throne. We turn from Christ who's reigning in our hearts. We turn from him, and we seek life in something else. That's just a dynamic that I call the dynamic of functional unbelief that helps me understand what's going on in my heart with regards to my own propensity to commit idolatry. What are you turning to in your heart to give you life? I've already revealed some of mine. I haven't really revealed the bad stuff. I'm not going to do that. But what are you turning to? What little idol have you put on your little counterfeit throne in your heart that you feel like is going to give you life security in the future, job what, what do you turn to children what is our dry cistern that we've dug and we're trying to drink out of it while the gushing river of God's grace is there at our back Loyalty to God is as natural as breathing, right? No. The greatest threat to loyalty is within our own heart. We're prone to idolatry. And the shattered idols that litter our life's pathway are proof. The greatest threat to loyalty comes from within our own hearts, but also comes within our own communities. And I've got to really be quick here, so I'm not going to spend much time with this. 
This is why I would encourage you to read chapter 13. Because here in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 18, Moses continues the warning. And he says, listen, not, not only is idolatry a matter of your heart, but it's also a matter of others within your sphere of influence, with, within your, your sphere of living, so to speak, others encouraging you to compromise and commit idolatry. So I'll just briefly summarize uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. Moses warns against false prophets and dreamers who are viewed as, as part of the covenant community, the church, and yet they encourage others to compromise. Like many leaders in the old denomination, the PCUS, who encouraged compromise that led to a denomination giving up on the authority of Scripture. Can you believe that? The prosperity preachers of our day encourage turning from the truth to worship the idol of their prosperity gospel. You can be happy, wealthy, and wise if you just contribute a little Verses 6 through 11, oddly enough, the threat can come within our own families, within our own circle of best friends. They encourage us to embrace something else. You know, a friend may be part of a liberal church and simply just criticizes you, can't understand why you, you take the Bible as God's very word. He says, oh man, you can be freed from that old time shackle. You know, come, come to my church. We just accept everybody. We don't have all those rules. The Bible doesn't say. And then in verses 12 through 18, the threat can come from within our own culture. Now, the text talks about a city, but I'm just simply applying this to our culture or an institution or an organization or another church or another denomination that encourages compromise. Today, Christians are being publicly shamed for affirming the biblical understanding of genders, biological males and females, being shamed for having a biblical understanding of the sin of abortion, being shamed of having a biblical understanding of the sin of homosexuality, being shamed to entice us to compromise and get in line with what is politically correct in our world today. And you know what? We're prone to this encouragement by others to compromise and commit adult idolatry. And the shattered idol is littering the way of loyalty proves this point as well. May we take the challenge that Paul gives in Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed, these are my words, to the false prophets and friends and family who encourage us to compromise as well as our own culture. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. Well, I have a question just as we conclude our time this morning. What is our hope? There is hope. And it's the third point that I would direct us to today. In light of our own heart struggle with idolatry, in light of the threats from those within our own communities, be it 
just our denomination or our families, our church, our, our, our culture. We have hope, and that hope can be summarized in, in, the, in the words faith and repentance. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 13 and verse 4. Here, Moses encourages the new generation, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast. I would suggest suggest that we understand walk after the Lord like we would understand it in other portions of Scripture that detail this, this concept of walk. It's just simply another way of saying live before God. That we are to live before God by faith. That's the, the heart of how a Christian is to live. Faith. And faith is never alone. Faith is always accompanied by repentance. Ezekiel 6.6 6, that we read earlier The very last verse, verse 6 of that passage we read says this, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. Turn back to God. Faith, repentance. In, In repentance, we acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge our idolatry. In repentance, if we can, we name the idol. And in repentance, we ask God to crush that idol, to topple it, to shatter it, that it would no longer threaten us to be disloyal to God. And I think as Thomas Watson, the Puritan, would have us do, He would say, even ask God to give us a holy hatred for that idol and the sin of idolatry. Psalm 31.6, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. In just a few minutes, we'll come to the table. Jeff read a passage of scripture that is in the context of the table It's also in the context of the people's propensity to commit idolatry. Paul pled with the Corinthians to flee from idolatry. Why? Because drinking from the cup of demons, idolatry, turning to an idol, is inconsistent with drinking from the cup of the Lord, coming to the table of the Lord. And so the table itself declares all the benefits of the covenant, but it also declares our desperate need to repent of our idolatry and to come by faith to the table. Here's the good news. God is able to topple every idol in our heart. God does topple every idol in our heart. Another important passage of Scripture dealing with idolatry is found in 1 Samuel chapter 5. The Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant that was in Ebenezer and brought it to their home base, Ashdod. They brought the Ark of the Covenant into the house of Dagon, their God, and placed the Ark of the Covenant right beside this statue, this idol of Dagon. And they left 
The next morning, the priests come in, and they found the idol of Dagon had been toppled. Its head and its hands had been broken off on the threshold, saying, this idol is nothing. <laughs> this idol is worthless. The Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, God toppled that stone idol. And it's showing us that he will do the same for you and for me. In order that we would be loyal to him, that we would worship him alone according to his word alone. In every area of our life, we would be fully devoted to him. He must and he will crush our idols. And what is our part in that? Repent and believe. One way to test if we are really believing in God and repenting of our idolatry as we seek loyalty is that as we look at the way of our life, the path that we are walking, our life of faith, it will be littered with shattered idols. Because like Dagon, our idols before holy God will be toppled. Our role is to repent and believe, repent of our idolatry, and turn back to God in our hearts. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are holy. We thank you that you are merciful and loving, compassionate, gracious. And though it would be make all the sense in the world that we would not even have to be told to be loyal to you after all you've done for us, yet we struggle so desperately with idolatry. We continue to struggle with sin. And so we ask you, O oh God, to give us the gift of repentance. Give us the, continue to give us the gift of repentance and faith. And shatter those idols, O oh God, we pray. Litter our path with the idols you have crushed that we might grow and mature in being loyal to you. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name.